Hi, welcome to Peacock Politics. Before we get going, a disclaimer of sorts. I recorded this episode in the weeks just before the COVID-19 outbreak turned into this life-altering pandemic, so that's why we haven't referenced it. Now that's done, sit back and join me in learning a little bit more about how Australian politics works in a normal world. Hopefully we get back there soon, and please do all you can to stay healthy. A Podcast One production. What makes a great leader in Australian politics today? There's so much going on behind the scenes they have to get right, both internally and externally. There's the leader's public face they have to put on and the personal toll it can take. And beyond that, what really makes a leader successful in the eyes of their own party? And how do they get it oh so wrong? We've seen it time and time again this last decade. Rudd, Gillard, Abbott, Turnbull. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. I'm Adam Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, I want to delve into what makes a great leader in Australian politics and whether leadership follows good politics or politics follows good leadership. My guest today is Phil Curry. He's the political editor for the Australian Financial Review, and he's been covering politics for 25 years. In that time, Phil's well and truly seen a lot of leaders come and go, greatness and utter garbage served up, perhaps in equal measure, Phil. Thank you for your time. Uh, Welcome, Adam. No worries. Vince Lombardi, the great gridiron coach in America, said leaders are born, not made. Is a leader born or are they made, in your opinion? I think just from what my, my my experience here is that they're born. Either you, you can do it or you can't. I've not seen anyone become a leader who's bad at it, get good at it, if you know what I mean. Um, so you, you either have uh, the qualities from the get-go. I mean, you can sort of learn around the edges. You know, one of the attributes of a good leader is they learn from mistakes. Uh, they're prepared to admit their mistakes, and a, and a very good leader only makes the mistake once. I think you have to have certain attributes before you um, you know get into the job. What about the personality of a leader? Is it different or do they show different traits to that of a normal politician? It's it's simplicity. The best leaders keep it simple. And by that, I mean the trait is conviction. A leader, a political leader tends to succeed if they have conviction. They actually believe what they're doing and, and they're prepared to argue for it and take the slings and arrows along the way and ultimately be vindicated. So uh, I think that's, you know... And they're just natural. You know, what we've seen is this, um, you know, over the last decade or so, um, it started with Kevin Rudd, unnatural behaviour, you know, focus group driven behaviour, scripted lines, talking points have overtaken conviction. And I think they use that to make up for a lack of leadership traits, if you know what I mean. So the good ones, when you have a personal relationship with them, that they've got this kind of, I don't know, vibe about them, to use that ma- magnificent word from the uh, the castle? Yeah, a good a good leader is, is, is they're the same off camera as they are on camera. Um, so the two probably that spring to mind in recent history are Bob Hawke and John Howard. So, and, and Paul Keating uh, as well. So you, you can talk to them. Well, Paul, Bob's gone now, but you could talk to them off camera and they're exactly the same person they were when they sat down at a press conference or in front of a, you know, a TV camera on the 7.30 report or something. They didn't, they weren't different people, you know, and they believe that something needs to be done. Now, whether you, yeah, and their great strength was their conviction. I mean, John Howard used to have that line, you may not like what I stand for, but you know what I stand for. And it was a very powerful and effective line because it was right. I mean, you knew what you got with the bloke. You knew he believed in what he was doing. Um, philosophically, same with Hawke. Um, 
Same with Keating. You know, they actually – now, they all ultimately suffered for their beliefs, if you like, because all political leaders wear out after a while, but they were enormously successful uh, during their tenures. Um, and we've just – that came to a screeching halt in um, 2007 after John Howard lost the election and Kevin Rudd and everyone after him um, came in. I mean, Tony Abbott, I guess – you know, used to would be portrayed as his conviction for a politician, but he was anything but that bloke. You know, had more positions on everything than anyone could remember. So, we haven't really had a conviction leader since since Howard. We'll get to the reasons why a bit later on. But out of that lot that you just mentioned, the good ones, who was the best of the lot, and what set them apart? Oh. Well, look, I didn't. I only came here in '98, so I didn't cover the Labor years. But I think probably Hawke. And, and look, Howard was very good too. I mean, I, I covered 11, 10, 11 years of Howard. He was a very good politician. Um, but again, you know, but was reinforced by his, um, his, his conviction. I'd say Howard and Hawke probably as a tie, you know, I think, um, because they also had an innate understanding of the mob, what the people wanted and what the people would put up with as well. Yeah. You know, and that also translated to the support of their party, which, you know, you can't do anything in this joint if the party doesn't support you. And you've got to keep it, you know, it's always, there's always currents and undercurrents going on, but they both had periods of, enor- long periods of enormous stability. And that, that again is an attribute to their ability to manage the forces within their party. Yeah, we've, we mentioned the personality traits, but from your experience, and it might be an extension of those last words you just said there about managing internally, but what makes a good leader? Is it like the ability to give magnificent speeches or good at taking action or good at resolving conflict? All, all of those, all of the above. Um, for, a, it's actually getting stuff done. B, it's managing, you know, it's being a good administrator. It's being you know, it's being, a, being there when in times of crisis and doing a good job. Um, uh, it's, you know, doing a reasonable job on the economy. It's implementing reforms. It's arguing for policy reform and getting it done and being vindicated. Uh, but it is also managing the currents in your party. I mean, Labor leaders are, have really tough, you know, because of all the various factions and so forth and, and, the key, and keeping the trade unions on side. I mean, Bill Shorten wasn't a bad leader of the Labor Party for those six years because, you know, they, they had a period of stability they had not had for over a decade under his leadership. Now, ultimately, he failed. Uh, to win the election because of, you know people didn't like him or his policies were too too much of an overreach, but in terms of being a Labor leader, he was very successful. They didn't have a fight for six years, and no one can ever remember last time Labor went six years without a fight. And we're seeing now under Albanese, sort of various currents and you know tensions are starting to brew already. But you know Howard was the same. Howard you know, had had a difficult job of managing the Nationals, uh, the right wing of the Liberal Party, the moderate wing of the Liberal Party, and keeping them all happy. And you've got to know when to give you know to give people a bit of a run in the paddock rather than try and rein them in, and when you've got to <laughs> rein them in. And it's the same, you know, with Hawke as well, with all the various factions and the, and the trade unions. I mean, he, 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 with Keating, they brought in the Accords, which kept the unions on side and managed to get the business community on side. I mean, that, that requires a, a particular skill set. So it's all of those things. From what you've noticed, how much energy goes into managing within as a leader, within the party ranks? And you've mentioned there that Labor have factions, so different ideals about how they think that the Labor Party should move forward. And I'm sure that the coalition, the, the Liberal Party joined up with the Nationals have similar issues, but of a, of a different manner. But how much energy goes into managing those aspects as opposed to how much energy goes into leading the country? I think probably 
you know, more into leading the country because that's their day job and, and that's what, that's the one, that's the one that keeps them awake at night. Uh, hmm. but you know, 20, 30% into party management. That's why you have good staff around you as a prime minister. Um, you have sort of toe cutters and head kickers and, you know, disciplinarians and stuff to sort of act as a conduit for the prime minister to try and keep that stuff under control. Um, you can't do everything as prime minister. So again, you know, being a good prime minister is, is often a factor of the staff around you as well, picking good people, chiefs of staff and, you know, fixers and people like that who can, you know, manage those internal problems. And again, that was another very strong attribute of the Howard office. You know, he had people like Arthur Sinodinus and Tony Nutt, two sort of very big figures back then who did a lot of that internal control and damage control. I find leaders who try to do that all themselves end up getting stretched too far and doesn't work very well at all. Kevin Rudd being a, a good example. What are the moments, mainly external, something that they, they get thrown that they have to handle as a leader? What are the moments that kind of define a leader? And give us maybe some good examples of that and some poorly executed examples. Well, I think in recent memory, Adam, the most poorly executed one was Scott Morrison's handling of the bushfires. Um, you know, everything he did was wrong, starting with going on holiday to Hawaii and trying to keep it a secret, um, and then coming back and then blaming everyone for everything rather than accepting responsibility. And, you know, he's never really quite just stood up and said, I got it wrong. I shouldn't have done this. I won't happen again. I've learned my lesson. He, he has a great difficulty in admitting error, that fellow. <laughs> so, Why did he try to keep it secret? Uh, because they knew it was a really bad look and people would get cranky. So the week before he went, one of his advisors said to me, the boss has taken a week off next week. And I sort of thought, I assume that was just uh, at the time the fires were getting serious and with this volcano incident in New Zealand. And I s- said to the bloke, I assume he'll be on light duties. He said, yes, I thought he'd be like hanging out at Kirribilli or just going up the coast with the kids. Um, that was only on the Monday when it got out that someone had seen him going, getting on a plane to Hawaii. I said to his office, has he gone to, has he gone to Hawaii? And they said, oh, we can't say, we don't know. I said, oh, bullshit. Yeah, yeah, of course you know where he is. And then of course, they just panicked and they lied for two or three days before they finally admitted he was in Hawaii. So that was just a classic example of, you know, what not to do. But back to your question, um, look, I remember after 9-11, uh, that was a fairly bad, you know, very volatile, scary time. Really? And people yeah. were worried. And I remember John Howard was stuck in the United States. He was there when it happened. And if you remember, it was a day or two after 9-11, ANSET went bust as well. So it was a very worrying time back in Australia. And and there was no one in, in control. Poor old Kim Beasley was watching his election prospects go down the drain. And John Anderson was acting prime minister and he was just completely hopeless. Um, and Howard, you know, moved heaven and earth to get back to Australia. The US put him on a military flight to Hawaii and then I think Qantas picked him up and flew him home or the RAF did. And I remember this sort of sense that when Howard arrived back in Australia, he got straight off the plane, convened a cabinet meeting, came out, did a press conference, you know, announced this levy for ANSET workers and then just calmed everyone down about 9-11. And I remember thinking that and that was quite a good moment of leadership um, in terms of, you know, the country sort of, it was like this sort of dad's home, everything's okay now, you know, everything's back under control. I vehemently disagreed with what Howard did subsequently when you know, joined the war in Iraq. That was a really dumb thing to do, and we're still paying for that. But his, I think his other great moment of leadership, Adam, was the Sydney Olympics. Yeah, there was a lot of cynicism and sort of whatever leading up to the games about, oh, 
you know, it's going to be a lot of money. Why are we doing this, et cetera, et cetera? You know, Sydney's a dump. Why are we having games? You know, and Kim Beasley was opposition leader and he, he, he made this big stand of knocking back these free tickets that he was entitled to as opposition leader. You know, why should I go to the games free when battlers, you know, uh, weren't getting tickets? Now, if you remember when the games came, it mm. was an enormously successful event. It was an enormously joyous occasion. Remember, this is the pre-9-11 world. And Australia just, we celebrated what a great job we'd done in these games. And it was obvious from the start that these games were going to be a huge amount of fun and everyone was enjoying the fun. And Howard picked the mood brilliantly. He turned up to everything. Um, and he didn't just go to the popular sports, you know, like the, you know, Kathy Freeman in the two, in the 400 and so forth. He went to the water polo and, you know, the, and there's, you know, the thing with the ribbon, you know, the gymnastics, rhythm gymnastics and stuff like that. He went to everything and he cheered on and he just, he picked it perfectly. He, he and he, he became a tragic. He started collecting pins. If you remember, the, uh, collecting pins was a big thing and he just, he had so many pins on him by the end of the game. His, his suit jacket was, um, you know, sagging. And I remember looking at him and going, that, that guy knows his, he knows the country and he knows the mood. And there was poor old Beasley sort of, you know, you know, sitting there trying to be virtuous by buying his own tickets for someone and no one cared. So that, that was sort of Howard moments. Um, you know, Hawk, similar with the America's Cup victory, uh, one of, one of his great moments, but also, Leading in times of um, crisis, you know, Howard's response to the Port Arthur massacre again was a, was a, a great example. You know, not only of being there and saying and doing all the right things, but um, you know, really gutsy decision on banning guns. You know, put his party's neck on the line to do that. I think that was in my time is probably the biggest uh, example of leadership I've, I've seen because it wasn't just hugging people and saying the right things or trying to grab their hand for a handshake. Hmm. Just in regards to when it doesn't go well for a leader, how do they twist themselves out of it? Like, what are the things that goes on behind the scenes? Like, you being an experienced journalist, they're trying to obviously uh, switch the narrative behind the scenes yeah. before they can do it in front of cameras. And do they try and plant things with you guys, or is there other ways that they try and go about it? Well, they, or they go around us or something. I'll just, just sort of quickly, I think I'd give Kevin Rudd a lot of points for the Black Saturday too. The bushfires, yeah. Yeah, because that's how that's a sharp contrast to what Scott Morrison did. You know, Kevin Rudd just rang up and said, I'm sending in the army. He didn't sit there and pretend he couldn't do it because the states had nasty. Um, look, I think watching Scott Morrison try and you know, react to the bushfires is an example of what they try and do when they've got it wrong. So um, they spend a lot of money. Uh, they convene a lot of roundtables. They basically think of everything they can think of, often they should have thought of before, and do it, and then claim they're acting and use words like action and a lot of spin and then just generally um, deny that they ever did anything wrong in the first place. I don't think you can fault what the government's done subsequent to the bushfires, but that is an example of, you know, it's cool playing catch-up, basically. Um, it's a pretty spectacular one. There has, there hasn't, there's not a lot of great examples I can draw on because there hasn't been a lot of great failures in leadership in terms of reacting to crises, but there's been a lot of great failures in leadership on policy. I think energy policy, the fact we don't have one and the fact we don't have a clearly defined or effective climate reduction policy, I think has been a cumulative failure of leadership on the coalition side, primarily resting with Tony Abbott. Um, but it's something, uh, it's a legacy he's left and it's something this government's trying to struggle and cope with now. That was the, the initial thought behind doing this podcast full stop was me sitting at home wondering what the hell is going on with mm. Australian politics, not understanding any of it, another change in leadership at the very top. And it seems just this cyclical nature that spinning out of control. So about leadership, does leadership follow good politics or does politics follow good leadership? 
Uh, it's the latter. Yeah, good policies, good politics. Go safely. If you if you lead and you get stuff done and you take on the difficult challenges and you make a case for it rather than explain, you tell people why we need to do it and and get them to come with you rather than you know pandering to you know reactionaries and populism and and coming up with the reasons. Then you do do nothing. So yeah, good policy and the good politics does follow. It is harder now. I'll, I'll grant it's a lot harder now with social media and. Yeah, and and the internet and everyone being an expert on everything and and you know real time sort of you know what what passes for analysis these days the the pressures are a lot greater. Um, it was a lot easier to do stuff when you know you didn't have the internet and you didn't have Twitter um, and Facebook and all the rubbish mm. that, that comes with it, uh, because you could actually make your case over a period of time and there were fewer distractions and 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 you know. You didn't have fake news, basically. People just making stuff up and publishing it who have no idea what they're talking about. So I doubt you'd be able to do the GST now, um, for example. I remember when they argued that and fought for that, and that took a you know, good 18 months to two years, and they just scraped over the line in the election. But um, I don't think you'd be able to do that now. It'd be a lot harder. Yeah, that was in the 90s before mobile phones pretty much took off, So, <laughs> let alone smartphones. Oh, it was. It was the, well, he took it to the 98 election, and he introduced it in 2000, and, and took it, you know, and it was it was a tough go. It was tough going, but mm. now, it, you know, I think it's a combination of all these pressures plus a lesser caliber of politician prepared to argue for stuff. So, uh, you know, nothing gets done. And climate is your your classic example. So, how has that then refined the role of a leader that this modern day, as opposed to what was going on before? I mean, do, do we actually look at those leaders that we've mentioned, the, the great leaders, mm. and you go back to Robert Menzies, who led Australia for mm. for decades, not years, um, Bob Hawke, John Howard, and Paul Keating, those guys. In a way, though, do we look at those leaders through rose-coloured glasses, or is it an actual fact that they were the benchmark that perhaps, I don't know, if we're ever going to get near to again? I think there's an element of looking back at rose-coloured glasses, because not everything back then went as smoothly as, you know, people say, and... You know, they, they all weren't perfect and, you know, certainly, you know, Howard had a lot of flaws as well. But I, what I, what I say to modern politicians, Adam, you know, you say, sit down and watch a Bob Hawke press conference or, you know, just get a tape or and watch a tape of a John Howard press conference. They're, they're not waffling. They're not reading. They're not using focus group line. They're saying, we're here to do this and this is why we're doing it and this is why it's going to happen. And, you know, it just baffles me that, I mean, look, Morrison was sort of like that. He, he started well like that. He started very well like that. You know, he was very much the person off camera is on camera. I think he, he lost his confidence over Christmas, over the fires and stuff. And I'm, I think the jury's out on him whether he's got it uh, to come back. But back to your question, I don't think, you know, I can't see anyone in the current parliament uh, on either side who's of, of that sort of calibre. Yeah, may, maybe... You know, Albanese's still very much the jury's out on him. He's been around a long time. He knows what it takes to be successful. He's been here over 20 years. If he gets a chance, if he could cut through the public, he may surprise us. But, I, you know, the, no one's really paying attention to him yet and views of him are still largely unformed or generally negative. But would we get a prime minister who's going to do two or th- you know, three terms? I doubt it. I think it's too hard now. And the parties are just so ill-disciplined that they, they don't, you know, they, they just panic and throw people out when <laughs> things go wrong. I mean, had the, you know, the same sort of stupidity. And I blame Julia Gillard for this. I mean, she's the one who started it. It was 10 years ago this year in June. You know, she moved on Kevin Rudd. Now, Rudd, like all first-term prime ministers, was struggling and having a terrible time. And, you know, they shouldn't have done it. And they did it, and they're still paying for it today. And not only did that, they set the benchmark for the Liberals to do the same thing. So, you know, Abbott was just knocked off, you know, halfway through his first term. Had parties behaved like this, you know, John Howard would not have made it 
through his first term. He had an appalling first term. You know, if people remember what went on, he had to sack about six ministers. He got in a terrible trouble over an aged care policy. The polls were appalling. He then, to get fight his way out of it, he decided to bring in a GST and tax everyone 10% more. I mean, it was just crazy stuff. You know, <laughs> but they, they, they held fat and they fell over the line just in 98. They actually lost the popular vote. You know, poor old Bomber Beasley could have been Prime Minister. He got 51, 52% of the vote, but not in the right seats. And, yeah, and then Howard grew from there and, and you know, learned from his errors and, and, and grew into the job. And all first-term prime ministers were like that. You know, we always remember in politics how people finished, not how they started. Mm. And we compare them to how their predecessors finished, not how they started. You know? And But this um, has not, you know, this has gone. This latitude has gone. Now, both parties have changed the rules, uh, so you can't knock them off. So maybe that'll give us a period of stability. But... You know, I tell you, over the summer when Morrison was having that shocking time, there were nervous phone calls being made, not with a view to throwing him out, but, you know, there were people ringing around just to gauge what the feeling was like in the party, you know, MPs ringing MPs, you know. they weren't. <laughs> so yeah, possibly. It's, it's, yeah. Nev- it's never far below the surface. Why do you think there's been that high rotation in the last decade or so? Uh, again, I think it's because um, the calibre of politicians has become poorer and social media and you know, the, the feedback has become so much more instant. People tend to react much more in- instantly. So whether it's web-based or, you know, emails to offices or, you know, seeing stuff on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, instant feedback panics people. And um, so they're just, they're, they're much more panicky now. They're, they're far less inclined to, to, to knuckle down behind a leader and, and a policy idea and try and make it work. And they'll, they'll instead take the easy option of, you know, the Messiah. Oh, it must be the leader rather than the policies who will knock, knock them off and put someone else in and that'll fix our problems. And it doesn't. And it's been shown not to, but they just, you know, we've seen the National Party started this year. You know, now the Nationals, they were like a family. They never fought. You know, they never fought. They never carried on like that. And they're as bad as everyone else now. So it's infected the entire, you know, it's infected the entire um, political system. And I, I, I don't see how it's going to stop. Maybe these leadership rules will will dampen it, but it's just a really bad thing. It's just become part of the furniture. Just briefly, what are those new leadership rules? Uh, so the, the the Liberal Party, I think it's if you had got a 66% uh, of the party room to knock off a Prime Minister. Uh, inside the Labor Party, it's 75% for a Prime Minister and two-thirds for a um, an opposition leader. But you still only need 51% to ditch the rule. So, <laughs> so, oh, so, so there's an element of protection. It, it did sort of contribute to the stability of Shorten's leadership and so forth. But you know, if they really want to get rid of you, they'll find a way of getting rid of you. Yeah, with those leadership challenges, and if you're a leader and you might be in a bit of trouble, who are the, the silent great white sharks that are lurking ready to – because obviously it's all about numbers of the MPs and yeah. everything, but who are the ones driving it from within that we – do not even know about that the leaders have got to be really worried about? Oh, look, it's not too secret. Like in the Liberal Party, for example, say Morrison got hit by a bus, it would be either Peter Dutton. You know, remember, he's the one who ran against Turnbull and didn't do his numbers very well and Morrison came up the middle. Dutton's not sort of shelved his ambitions yet. He'd he'd probably be right at the front of the queue if Morrison got hit by a bus, as would Josh Frydenberg, who probably sees himself as the, you know, the, the heir apparent. 
you know, and Christian Porter. So those three guys and the people in their orbit, uh, you know, not 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 that anyone doing anything or being treacherous or anything like that, but yeah, you know, that that's where you know support would drift um, if tickets were starting to get organised. Who does that? Who like they obviously can't come and do it. Oh, numbers men in the party, you know, like well, Morrison has his own numbers men. He has people like Alex Hawke, you know, who are very good at, and Ben Morton, they're MPs, but they're 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 factional hacks more than they are MPs, and they're the ones who delivered him the prime ministership. Uh, Dutton would, you know, he'd probably enlist support from the right wing, so it'd be people like Matthias Corman and, and, and the other, on the hard right, those numbers guys. And Josh, he's, you know, Josh, everyone loves Josh, and Josh loves everybody, so he'd be garnering support across the spectrum. Uh, so he'd begin the moderate faction leaders like Trent Zimmerman and, you know, those sorts of guys, as well as conservatives, you know, in the Victorian base. I mean, I could bore you for hours about how it works. <laughs> um, and, in the, and in the Labor Party, it's a little bit more simple. If Albanese, who's of the left and has support of the broad left faction, um, the right's a little bit more splintered in Labor, but he, the New South Wales right is still, you know, still sort of God. So if if people like Chris Bowen and Tony Burke and Jason Clare and um, the, those guys from the New South Wales right, if they switch their support away from Albanese, he'd be, he'd be cooked. So the battle within the party as well as much as anything. Oh, yeah, and, and thus it's always been. You know, you're never going to keep everyone happy. You've just got to have the majority happy. And we saw back in February there was an outbreak in Labor over coal and this thing called the Otis Group, you know, sort of reared its head. Now there's a lot of members of the right in this Otis group, there's this group of Labor MPs who didn't feel Albanese was being pro-coal enough, but significantly for him, there weren't many members of the New South Wales right, so he wasn't too worried about that. But if all those New South Wales right guys were involved in that, he would have been more worried. Graham Richardson, in an earlier uh, episode of Peacock Politics, explained it well with the Labor Party. We won't get into it here, but if you want to revisit it, it's, uh, it's earlier on in this particular uh, podcast series. One last one. Where does the next great leader come from, like, how is that person born or are we in a situation where at the moment, and you touched on it earlier, that um, it's a little bit unlikely as we sit here right now? Yeah, look, I don't know because the whole system has turned these people into what they are. I think, look, the next great leader, look, they may be in the parliament, I don't know. There's a lot of good people on both sides. Uh, but they've got to have conviction. They just can't be creatures of the political parties, you know, and have these sort of manufactured convictions that, you know, tick the boxes or... Um, it's got to be someone who actually believes in stuff and is prepared to just say it, say it straight. And if it's not popular, we'll say a bit, cop the flack. I, I don't know. And, and I can't see the political system as it is attracting people of that caliber that they, they tend to more go into business now. You can have more, look at someone like Mike Cannon Brooks or someone like that goes into business and has more effect as a businessman. I thought probably, you know, Paul Howes, you know, who was the Australian Workers' Union leader, I thought Paul was a very clever guy. He was, um, he had good policy ideas, he had good conviction, he had strong beliefs, and now he's working for one of the big four accountancy firms making a million bucks a year. You know, he, he just got this, and, yeah, he was the sort of guy Labor could have used. Greg Combay was another one. Greg, a very sort of honest, capable fellow who had strong beliefs and wasn't scared to fight for them. So I'm not sure where the next person comes from. Um, same in the Liberal Party. I mean, who's there that has strong convictions? I don't know. Um, you know, Christian Porter, keep an eye on him. He's quite good, uh, he, you know, but he's very ambitious. I mean, you've got to have that element of ambitious and con- ambition and conviction. Um, Morrison may, you know, if he scrapes through the next election, he could 
he could surprise us all. Uh, he certainly has the makings of you know, those sorts of things. He certainly has a lot of conviction. He needs a little bit more humility, um, but he also needs ideas of what he wants to do. He, he, at the moment, he's just administering Australia. He's not really leading it. He doesn't really have any big ideas. You know, there's no great agenda. There's no reform agenda. So it's a good question, and I can't answer it, to be honest. I don't know where's the, where they're going to come from. They might just pop up. <laughs> Brilliant. Glad I asked them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, a, an extra one to the last one is the way that our system is set up. Basically, you can't lead the country unless you're in the Labor Party or the Liberal Party or the Coalition or the, or the, the Labor Party. Um, are we missing out on potentially a great person coming through who's not beholden to those two forms or two ideals that, yeah, they're just left hanging. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of good people on the crossbench, but, you know, and, and but that's more a reflection on the on the party. I mean, as Malcolm Turnbull said, we've got all these very smart conservative women like Zali Stegall, Helen Haynes, Rebecca Sharkey. They're all sitting in seats that were once safe liberal seats. They're now on the in, in the independent benches. That's more, they're very good, talented people, but that's more a reflection on how the party has let them down. But no, if you're going to become prime minister, you need a party behind you. You need the, you need the infrastructure behind you of a party system. Um, you're not going to do it. You know, you're not going to come up the middle in Australia like you know Macron or someone like that. And and I, I just think the party system works well, you know, for all for all its failings, because it's it's a damn hard thing to do is to govern and or be in opposition, and you need resources and you need consistency. I mean, it's okay. I mean, the easiest job in politics, Adam, is saying what's wrong, right? And this is this is what Pauline Hanson is the best moaner in in, in Australian <laughs> politics. She can stand up every day and tell you exactly what is wrong with everything, but she's never had a workable solution to any of it. You know, one that's actually implementable or, you know, um, but she's enormously popular because she's good at uh, articulating people's frustrations in certain demographics of this country, but she actually has never come up with a, a solution that if you, that you could actually implement and it would work. So at the end of the day, you know, the two-party system, it's, you know, it's been successful a long time. It's far from perfect. Democracy is far from perfect, but it's a lot better than the alternatives. Um, so I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, to have that infrastructure and support network, you know, leaders have to come up through the party system. And it, you know, and it also breeds toughness. I mean, a lead, to fight your way to the leadership of one of these parties, you know, you got to, you got to have special qualities. Um, and, and you need those same sort of qualities to lead a country. Philip Curry, political editor of the Australian Financial Review, thanks so much for the insight about leadership in Australian politics. Appreciate your time. No worries, Adam. I hope it helped. It did. <laughs> Cheers, mate. See you, mate. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Tina Matilov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.